Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static, and and John, the hits keep coming. Mark Chenoweth here with John Vecchioni. We have yet another wonderful victory to report to our audience, and this one comes from the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the Second Circuit uh, in a case called uh, Mukun Vingulatore v. Uh, Cornell University and the U.S. Department of Education. And Vec, uh, this... Uh, uh, this is one of our very first clients, Dr. Vinglator. We've talked about him more than once uh, on this program previously, a decorated physics professor at Cornell University who came up for tenure. When he did, there was a disappointed former student who had been who had left the university for academic reasons, and that person wanted to make sure that Dr. Vinglator did not get tenure, and so she invented some accusations against him which we believe to be entirely fabricated. And the university's response to that was to launch a full-fledged Title IX investigation without according our client due process. And so it's, uh, it's refreshing to see, you know, we took this case to the Northern District of New York Federal District Court and, and it was dismissed. So we appealed it to the Second Circuit uh, and, and it was really refreshing to see a panel of judges take seriously these due process issues, because there's really no doubt that whether whether you believe Dr. Vinglator or not, there's zero doubt that he was completely denied due process uh, in this case and denied the ability to to establish uh, his innocence of the charges alleged. And the fact that the Second Circuit has now decided to send this case back down to the to the Northern District uh, of New York. Uh, is great. Now, the, the particular two issues that have been revived are first, the Title IX claim. Uh, essentially, Dr. Vinglator claims that he's been discriminated against under Title IX as a member of the faculty. Uh, in other words, he himself has experienced gender discrimination. They they have decided to treat him differently uh, than, than they would have uh, if he weren't a man. And I think it's... Uh, uh, what the district court had said was that there was no private action for faculty members under Title IX. And that position was inconsistent with many other courts around the country who have looked at that issue. So I think it's fair to say, John, that we were optimistic that the Second Circuit would side with the majority of courts around the country and decide that there was a private uh, right of action uh, to enforce a Title IX by faculty members. And indeed, that's what the court uh, so held. It also revived his defamation claim against Cornell uh, University. In the process of denying him all these due process uh, rights, they also dragged his name through the mud and made it very difficult for Dr. Vinglator to get a position at any other university. And they completely fabricated uh, something that neither he nor the person who accused him had said that he was involved in a year-long consensual relationship with a student. And yet that's ultimately what the university found and publicized. So that's uh, that, that I think, uh, forms the basis for uh, what will go forward uh, on the defamation charge uh, at the 
on return to the district court. Uh, but John, there's there's something more fundamental uh, in this case, and that is this complete lack of, of due process. And if you if you read the majority opinion by uh, by Judge Amalia Curse, uh, she walks through really step by step all of the different ways in which due process was was denied in this case. Now, I should say we're we're somewhat disappointed that the U.S. Department of Education was dismissed uh, from the lawsuit. We do feel that it was the Department of Education's uh, coercion or threats uh, to Cornell University in the guise of a dear colleague letter and some Q&As that went out under the Obama administration that really led Cornell to change uh, its policies. And so we think that Cornell is certainly responsible for changing its own policies, but we think the U.S. Department of Education shares some responsibility uh, for those changes in policy. And the fact that, that that part of the case is not going to go forward is a little bit uh, disappointing, but I'm I'm thrilled that we're going to con- get to continue to press the case against Cornell, uh, both on the Title IX charge and on the defamation charge. But but I think that perhaps the due process aspects of this case were summarized even better in a concurrence uh, by Judge Jose Cabranes of the Second Circuit, who also sat on the panel. Yeah, you know, Mark, and and that's the thing. The opinion itself is very strong on. What happened to uh, what happened to Dr. Venglator was absolutely terrible. And you think that you read that opinion and you think, "Oh my gosh, this is terrible." And then you read the you read the concurrence and you're all like, "Oh my God, they 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 sort of underplayed it." <laughs> right? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, uh, if anything, the the concurrence goes goes further than the than the majority opinion. And you know, I the uh, uh, the, the concurrence was succinct and uh, pointed enough that the Wall Street Journal saw fit to run it uh, this week as a separate uh, item. And so uh, I think uh, I'd like to do something we don't do very often around here, which is which is uh, read something to you or, or quote at length. But I think that this uh, this concurrence is worth uh, quoting at length. So so let me just tell you what Judge Cabranes uh, had to say. He said, I, I, I concur in the judgment of the court and in Judge Curse's comprehensive opinion. I pause briefly to comment in my own name that, as alleged, this case describes deeply troubling aspects of contemporary university procedures to adjudicate complaints under Title IX and other closely related statutes. In many instances, these procedures signal a retreat from the foundational principle of due process, the erosion of which has been accompanied, to no one's surprise, by decline in modern universities' protection of the open inquiry and academic freedom that has accounted for the vitality and success of American higher education. This growing, quote unquote, law of university disciplinary procedures, often promulgated in response to the regulatory dictates of government, is controversial and thus far and thus far largely beyond the reach of the courts because of, among other things, the presumed absence of state action by so-called private universities. Thus insulated from review, it is no wonder that in some cases these procedures have been compared unfavorably to those of the infamous English Star Chamber. Professor Mukun Venglator's allegations have supported by evidence provide one such example of the brutish overreach of university administrators at the expense of due process and simple fairness. His allegations, if corroborated, would reveal a grotesque miscarriage of justice at Cornell University. As alleged, Cornell's investigation of Vinglator denied him access to counsel, failed to provide him with a statement of the nature of the accusations against him, denied him the ability to question witnesses, drew adverse inferences from the absence of evidence, and failed to employ an appropriate burden of proof or standard of evidence. 
In other cases, in other universities, the catalog of offenses can include continuing surveillance and the imposition of double jeopardy for long ago grievances. There is no doubt that allegations of misconduct on university campuses, sexual or otherwise, must of course be taken seriously, but any actions taken by university officials in response to such allegations must also comport with basic principles of fairness and due process. And he says more than that, John, but I think that's probably enough uh, for, for this audience. And it just underscores what we've been saying you know, from, from the outset. And Dr. Vinglator is one of our very first clients that we took on uh, here at, uh, at, at NCLA. And John, you'll recall that when we took him on, we, we first heard that Cornell had denied the ability for one of his other graduate students to receive uh, his diploma because that graduate student had come to Dr. Vinglator's defense with an op-ed in the local paper uh, in Ithaca, or it might have been the campus paper. I can't recall which now. Horrors uh, of horrors. Yes. And had said that, you know, that these accusations weren't true and that Dr. Vinglator was innocent and so forth. And the university actually tried to pull his, uh, pull his diploma uh, for that. And that's what we first, when we first heard about the case. And so we got involved and called the student and said, hey, do you need a lawyer? Because uh, we think this is ridiculous and you know, we're willing to sue the university on your behalf and make sure that they, that they give you that diploma. Uh, it turned out that he already had counsel, but he was the one who who uh, first told us that there was no way these accusations were true about his professor and and encouraged us to get in touch with Dr. Vinklator, uh, which we have done. And we've done more than that. We've, we've represented him in this case uh, up to the Second Circuit now. We have sent a we have sent a, a, a kangaroo to, uh, to Ithaca uh, last, uh, last August as, as new students were arriving on campus. Uh, we, had a, we had someone in a kangaroo costume uh, c- complaining about the Title IX kangaroo courts uh, on the campus at uh, Cornell University. Uh, and we had some, some advertising that went with that. There was a truck going around the campus uh, with, a, with a message about uh, making sure that, uh, that due process was provided for people accused in these Title IX proceedings. And I think, I think, John, what's eventually going to happen is that other courts are going to join with the Second Circuit. They're going to, they're going to tell these universities that these due process principles have to be followed in these kinds of proceedings if universities are going to do it. I mean, there's enough federal funding in these cases. There are enough, uh, there's enough state action in my mind, particularly at a university like Cornell, that's partly a public university, uh, to, to justify forcing requirements with constitutional uh, due process. And if private universities insist on, uh, on putting people through uh, processes that are devoid of, uh, of due process, then I think that, that uh, the universities, uh, first of all, students should, shouldn't go to those universities. And second of all, uh, those universities shouldn't be the beneficiaries of state or federal funding. And there's just no reason why we need to have the kind of utter deprivation of due process that Dr. Vinglator experienced. There, there isn't a charge that is so severe that, that someone shouldn't be able to defend themselves, that, that innocence, that the charge is so severe that innocence itself isn't a defense from the charge, <laughs> right? And that's the point of due process is to provide you with the opportunity to defend yourself. And that's not something that Dr. Dr. Vinglator was provided uh, the university that, instead chose to jump to conclusions. Go and ahead. That is part, and that is part of the sex discrimination as well in that, in that you know, the, the people who were doing the investigation had a view of the case from the get-go, from the That's very right. start. It wasn't an investigation. It was an inquisition. 
That's right. It was a he said, he said, she said, in which uh, everything she said was believed and everything he said was neither believed nor investigated nor allowed to be uh, proved to the uh, to the judge and jury there at Cornell. So great victory for NCLA, great victory for Dr. Bendlegor. Uh, we'll keep you posted as this case goes back on remand. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni here with you as always. And we filed at the New Civil Liberties Alliance a brief, an amicus brief at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, earlier this month that I think is is worth uh, telling you about. The case is, it's actually several cases that are, uh, or several different oppositions of, of petitioners and respondents together. It's a bunch of, of different cases, numbers 21376, 21377, 21378, and 21380 all had cert granted and uh, under the auspices of, of Halen v. Brackeen, uh, Deb Halen being the Secretary of the Interior. And the particular issue that, that the New Civil Liberties Alliance cares about was in the state of Texas v. Halen case, which is one of the one of the others there that's that, that have all been granted cert together. And the particular issue that NCLA is concerned about uh, and that we jumped in on is whether the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is called ICWA, I-C-W-A, whether the Indian Child Welfare Act 25 U.S.C. sections 1901 through 63 and its implementing regulations violate the non-delegation doctrine by allowing individual tribes to alter the child placement preferences enacted by Congress. And so just to just to back up a little bit, and first of all, there are other issues in this case as well. So uh, I'm not going to, to comment on those. We didn't we didn't comment on those in our brief, and and I'm not uh, up to speed on those other issues well enough to to share them uh, with you. Uh, but I I'm very familiar with this aspect of the case, which is that under the Indian Child Welfare Act, uh, the statute uh, has you know, particular uh, kinds of considerations that that uh, need to be made in making these child placement uh, decisions uh, for Native American children. And the problem is that after specifying these things in the statute, the statute goes on to say that individual tribes can alter those statutory, statutorily expressed congressional preferences. And there is absolutely no sort of uh, intelligible principle, if, if, if you will, under the non-delegation doctrine that tells the tribes how to, how to, if they're, in other words, if they're not going to follow the rules that Congress laid down, what rules are they going to follow? And what's the, you know, what is the, uh, what, what guidance is Congress giving in, in that case? And it appears, John, that they're not giving any guidance at all, that they're just telling the tribes, well, look, if you're, if you're going to conform with the statute, great. If you're not going to conform with the statute, also great. And just do what you want to do. And that's uh, that's not consistent with Article One, Section One of the U.S. Constitution, which says that all legislative power 
belongs with Congress, right? That, I, have, that, I have a question about that, Mark, yeah. that some of our listeners may be thinking about. If they did this to a state, is this is there do the do the, do the tribes say that because that they that they have their own legislative power because of some sovereignty or something? I, I think that that's the probably the best argument on the other side, uh, but it still doesn't allow Congress to give its legislative power to any other entity, whether that's a state or an Indian tribe or the editorial page of the New York Times. I mean, it's just the, <laughs> the legislative power of Congress belongs to Congress and it can't vest that in some other entity, it, right? It's been vested in Congress. It can't divest that power under the constitution uh, in, in somebody else. And that's what they're, that's what they're doing here. And even under the current non-delegation doctrine, which we at NCLA think is pretty tepid and has not really resulted in something being struck down, a, an act of Congress being struck down as, as violative of the non-delegation doctrine uh, for something like 85 years, 87 years, something like that. Uh, so it's a pretty tepid doctrine. But even under, and by the way, one that needs to be reinvigorated and, you know, and, and uh, uh, this gives me a chance, John, to plug my book chapter uh, in my recent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, plug so it. Recent... Go ahead. <laughs> the recent, uh, the recent book that that uh, AEI uh, published, and my colleague here at NCLA, Rich Stamp, and I have a chapter uh, in that book on core legislative power and reinvigorating uh, the non-delegation doctrine. And that's the American uh, Enterprise Institute. Yes, thank you. Right, AEI Press, American Enterprise Institute. Uh, uh, non-delegation before the Supreme Court. So the, uh, but but under the current test, uh, which has not been reinvigorated yet, they haven't followed our advice yet, John. But uh, you know, there's still time. Uh, but under the current test, the the so-called intelligible principle test, at a minimum, the law has to provide some discernible standards when it delegates authority to to someone else. And here it doesn't, there don't appear to be, to be any section 1915C of the statute provides no guidance whatsoever to tribes regarding when and how they can exercise their authority to reorder Congress, Congress's placement uh, priorities. And for that reason, it, it would appear uh, to violate uh, the, the vesting clause of Article 1. But in addition to th this problem of not providing an intelligible principle, there's also the problem that I alluded to a moment ago that it's delegating legislative power to an entity completely outside the federal government. And, you know, you, you might say, well, you know, what's wrong with that? Well, the, the rationale, uh, th there's, there's, there's a series of non-delegation cases. And one of the reasons why these cases have tended not to strike down acts of Congress over the years is that they have, they have uh, been cautious about assuming that the courts were in a better position than Congress uh, to decide you know, how much power to, to delegate. And, but the reason for that caution doesn't really exist where the delegation is happening entirely outside of the federal government. So this isn't a question just of separation of powers or you know, taking some federal power and some of it being in the executive branch and some of it being in the legislative branch. They're taking power that properly belongs in the federal government and moving it completely outside of the federal government 
uh, to these Indian tribes. And so to the extent that that non-delegation doctrine has suggested reason for caution before, uh, that caution should be thrown to the wind <laughs> in this particular circumstance. Uh, and and the Article 1, Section 1 should be given uh, full force and effect. Uh, John, you alluded to the sovereignty possessed by, by Indian tribes, and we, we argue in our amicus brief that that does not exempt them uh, from the non-delegation uh, doctrine. Uh, the Constitution just doesn't authorize Congress to delegate the legislative power that Congress possesses uh, you know, to Indian tribes. And Congress has not just uh, under the uh, Article 1, Section 1, but under the Indian Commerce Clause as well. That's the other claim that that was made below is that the Indian Commerce Clause uh, reserves some sort of power to uh, to the Indian tribes, or at least that Congress has the ability to completely delegate its power uh, to the tribes under the Indian Commerce Clause. But think about the implications of that for a second, John. If that were true, if it were true that because of the Indian Commerce Clause that, uh, that Congress were allowed to, to divest that power, then what would prevent Congress from vest, you know, divesting power under any of the other clauses, under whether it's the Appropriations Clause or the, the Commerce Clause itself or the Spending Clause or the Taxing Clause? I mean, if it were true that there was some magic about the Indian Commerce Clause that allows the, the powers vested in Congress under that to be divested, doesn't it follow that Congress would be permitted to divest its powers under other, other Article I provisions? Yeah, that, that would be the problem. Yeah. So the, uh, the Fifth Circuit, uh, somewhat surprisingly, stated that Indian tribes are exempt from the non-delegation doctrine, that they, that they possess sovereign authority and that the vesting clause doesn't bar Congress from adopting uh, federal law as the, adopting as federal law the laws of another sovereign. But I think what they failed to appreciate, and, and there, there are laws like this, John, where we take somebody else's law and we say this is federal law. I mean, treaties is a good example of that. Sometimes you enter a treaty and then Congress will adopt that, and then that treaty becomes part of uh, a federal law. But what, what you're doing in those cases is you're taking something that's already been established and you're making it your own. Or something like the Uniform Commercial Code maybe another, is another example. That code might have been written by somebody else, but once Congress adopts it and makes it federal law, well, then it's fixed as federal law. What's different here is you're not taking something that's fixed and known and adopting it as federal law. Instead, you're giving an open-ended grant of future authority to another entity and saying that what they do in the future will be treated as valid under federal law. And that's a, that's a lot different than taking something that's fixed uh, that another uh, entity, whether it's another sovereign entity like an Indian tribe or even something that's not uh, not a sovereign entity like the uh, like the, the folks who put together the you know uniform code uh, provisions. Uh, I just don't think those two things uh, are the same. And so when we look at uh, at the at the Brackeen v. Uh, Halen case uh, at the Supreme Court, I think those are the important issues in play. Now, I think I said that in reverse, John. It's uh, it's at the Supreme Court. It's it's Halen v. Breckin. But wow. in any event, uh, the the court may not reach this issue set. I mean, I hope it does because obviously we're very interested in non delegation. I think this is a good example of of uh, uh, 
of a time when it has been problematic and the way that Congress has dealt with, with this issue does violate the Constitution. But as I alluded to at the very beginning, there are lots of other issues in this case, and Congress could, or excuse me, the Supreme Court could kick this case for lots of other reasons and decide uh, to overturn the Fifth Circuit for other reasons uh, as well. And so I won't be completely surprised if this issue uh, isn't reached. But if the issue is reached, if they do reach the non-delegation issue, I feel fairly confident that the Supreme Court will overturn the Fifth Circuit and will agree with us that this is not a kind of power that Congress uh, is allowed to divest uh, to the Indian tribes. But uh, but stay tuned. We'll keep track of this case for you and report back when, uh, when a decision issues. 